You're listening to Tone Benders, the sound designer's podcast. Let's do this. Hey, everybody, welcome to Tone Benders. My name is Tim, and today we are talking about the recent Aaron Sorkin film, The Trial of the Chicago Seven. The film portrays real-life events of the court case surrounding the uprising at the 1968 Democratic National Convention in Chicago. As the trial chugs forward, we realize that justice isn't being served quite as fair as it should be, and it's the subtlety of the reactions of the mostly off-screen courtroom crowd that heightens these moments and highlights the injustices. All of this work feels completely natural, and that is no small task for a sound team. In addition to the court scenes, there are flashbacks to the protests that led us to this trial, the police barely speak, but their presence is weighted down in the sound of their heavy boots, the radio chatter, and their riot gear foley. And then there is the sound of the wooden bats bouncing off skulls. You can look away from the screen all you want, but it's the sound of those bats hitting the skulls that's making you shudder. To talk about their work on the trial of the Chicago 7, we are joined today by re-recording mixer Michael Babcock. Welcome to the show, Michael. Thanks for having me. Listeners will know Michael's past work, including Dr. Sleep and American Pickle, one of my kids' favorite movies, Smallfoot, and the amazing short animated film, If Anything Happens, I Love You. It's an animated short currently on Netflix, and if you haven't seen it, go out of your way to see it because it will bring out every emotion you have all in under 12 minutes. It's a stunning piece of work. So welcome to the show, Michael. Thank you. Also joining us is Renee Tondelli. Renee was previously on Tone Benders to talk about Mary Poppins Returns in our episode 89. Welcome back to the show, Renee. Thanks for having me. Definitely. You're welcome anytime. Of course we'd have you. What are you talking about? <laughs> Renee has worked on Lone Survivor, Bombshell, Into the Woods, and was nominated for an Oscar for her work on Deepwater Horizon. Okay, let's talk about the trial of the Chicago 7. If I understand Mr. Seal this last month and a half, and I believe I have, he is not represented by counsel. Overruled. I am being denied Mr. right now Seale, my constitutional will you be right for will legal you, representation. Will you be quiet? You have lawyers to speak for you. No, he doesn't. Cite Mr. Counselor with his second count of contempt. All rise. Renee, what was the first thing you thought about was going to be the biggest challenge when you got your hands on the script and footage started rolling in? Well, we started this film at the end of February, and something really big happened right around then. <laughs> and I looked at this and thought, oh, great, I've got thousands and thousands of people here on a riot scene in a courtroom, journalists, Black Panthers. How on earth am I going to do this? All the stages had been closed. So, you know, and you called around, nobody had a plan yet because everybody was like, well, I mean, one person said, don't worry about it. You know, by April 12th, you will be able to get more than two people in a room. Well, <laughs> you know, here we are the next year. We're barely getting that open. I had to just wing it. And, and I think if I learned anything from COVID, and I think we all can experience this, is that being creative really was a force. I mean, you just had to figure things out that you never did before. I mean, there was no protocol for what we were going through. So Mike and I had these great ideas of how we were, we'd already cast all hundreds of kids. They were going to come. We were going to do it all in the Warner Brothers lot. We had recorders. It was like, boom, gone. We couldn't, all that was out of the question. So, and by the way, it was also pencils down. So wherever you were, was where you stayed. So 
all these actors were around the world. I mean, some were in their homes in North Carolina with very little internet. One was in Denmark, one was in Northern England. So it was, I thought, well, they all have a phone. You know, I basically sent everybody a little Sure MV88 that went into their phone and I taught everybody, went on like FaceTime walks through everyone's homes and found their best place to record. And then they would test, they'd send me in tests and then I would critique it and they would send me in more tests. And we did this for weeks before we recorded anything because this had to be done correctly. So, and you know, one of the things is that some actors, like loop group actors, are pretty good at this because they're used to recording themselves for auditions, but there's a lot that are Luddites. And a lot of principal actors were just clueless. I mean, one poor guy, I, I tried and tried and tried, and finally I just said, do you have a teenager at home? And he said, <laughs> yeah, I do. And I said, could you, could you ask him to come into the room for a minute? And then I said, grab your dad's phone, do blah, blah, blah. And, his, and the kid actually became my engineer for this shot. You know, It was really tricky to basically teach people how to record. And that didn't just mean their room or the settings or the, the location, but it meant, okay, now I need you to scream bloody murder like you're being beaten. And then I need you to whisper like you're in a courtroom. And then I need you to talk normally. And so send me those. And they would send me, this is 12 inches away. This is 15 inches away. And I, I mean, I, this is like, I know this sounds terribly boring, but it was so complicated to get this all together in one space, right? And then another thing one learns, we had all the actors on Zoom, and then they would send me all of their files, which they slated, thank God. And then my wonderful assistant, Linda Yaney, took these hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of takes, built massive library sessions for me. And then I sat there trying to make these singular voices coalesce into a group. And on one hand, it was great because you could really identify what didn't work. You could get rid of that voice, change that line, do this kind of thing. But then the ultimate event, you know, the ultimate experience of it seemed, even though it was sort of granular and articulated in an interesting way, but you found that certain voices just were not harmonic with one another. So then you created these groups of harmonics like, especially when we just went and did the chants, like you think, okay, everyone's chanting the same word, right? Well, no, there were like probably three harmonic groups I had because this group worked together, this group worked together, and this group worked together. And they, they needed to be developed much like a symphony, you know, because I, I think what you find too, and what they found is that when you are singularly playing, like say you're playing the cello, right? And you're playing by yourself in a room and you play differently than when you play in a group because you get into the emotion and you get into this this sort of coalescence with one another and it sounds different. So that was a big learning curve for me. And Michael, how did she do collecting all those voices when you got on the mix stage? Really well. I mean, I I have to admit, it really ended up working, I think, better than we all anticipated. (laughs) (laughs) 
what were you in charge of for the mix on Chicago 7, Michael? On this one, I did effects. I was sweetening the chance in that um, Julian took care of all the group things, and I was sweetening all that stuff to try to make it sound bigger and wider. I mean, originally, Renee and I were going to go out into the back lot and just record a bunch of people yelling and screaming, and it's fairly easy to find recordings of riots, but very specific chants and things that, no, I mean, that's, you know, you, you have to start from scratch and, you know, make it organic to this movie. So. Yeah, we mixed it once because we didn't have the orchestra recorded yet because, of course, they couldn't be in a room together. So that we ended that in, like, June, end of May, June, and then, boom, the, the Los Angeles riots happened, and I went down to record them, ironically, sadly, finding them doing the same chants, but we couldn't really use it because it was all tied into modern sirens and modern, you know, there was a lot of modern noise that just couldn't, I, I used certain things in it, but I couldn't use what I had hoped I could. Everything had to be 1968. Every car, every siren, it had to be Chicago sirens, you know. It was a very specific time and sound. Yeah, and I, sh- I should add, there is some, I don't know if you want to call them Easter eggs, but there is actual audio footage um, of the riots in the movie. Oh, really? It was snuck into a lot of places, but also when you hear, or when it cuts to the old original black and white footage, there's a lot of crossover between what was, you know, what's actually quote unquote new and things that were recorded from the actual events. So there's a, there's a lot of those snuck in there, certain chants, certain sounds, yeah, um, certain screams, that, that kind of thing. Well, before we started, I had my whole crew watch Haskell Wexler's Medium Cool, which was a film shot during the riots while it was actually going on. He had his actors walk through the riots, walk in the convention center, walk down State Street, be a part of the marches. And I said to everyone, this is really what I want it to sound like. I don't want it to be big and polished. I want to maintain this intimacy with the protesters and with the experience that was going on there. And we spent a lot of time going over and making sure that those baton hits actually sounded like skulls being cracked, not big and overblown. I, I think you have a tendency when that happens to sort of tune out and not think of it as being real. It was kind of like that, you know, that if you go to your house and you've got one of those temperatures for your shower and it's hot and cold and it's you barely move your hand and it goes to the <laughs> either one. Well, that was how it was with all of the choices we were making. And because there were so many stories to tell because it was an ensemble piece. So in order to tell those stories, there was a lot of intercutting going back and forth. And every time we would go to another piece, it would be a different environment, a different scene. And what Mike was saying about crossing over from original footage, from our footage to original footage, was probably the only time that we wanted to make sure that there was this connectivity between the sonic backgrounds going on so that it really did feel like you were there and that you were there now and you were there then. It's a powerhouse. The opening montage 
is exactly what you're talking about. The first is it's probably five minutes long. It's it's a pretty long sequence. Yeah. If someone came into the film having never heard of the protests, it gives you uh, the entire kind of background of what led up to the protests, and it's all cutting between. Uh, actual archive footage, I'm assuming, that's what it appears to me. And then also you're being introduced to the actors that are going to be part of the film that are coming up. So they're almost taking part in these archive footage and it all weaves together so smoothly. Did you have to do excessive cleaning up or even dirtying down of your new stuff to make it feel smooth? On the effects side, yes. Um, There were certain sound effects that were sweetened the original footage that I did dirty up you know, gunshots, that, that kind of thing. Um, some of the quick cuts of rioting and just tanks and things going by. They, they do have treatments on it to match what the footage is. What's your go-to move to dirty something up? It kind of depends. I always start out with filters. You know, it's funny. There's some gunshots in here that uh, I'm trying to remember what exactly I did. I, I used some distortion plug-in along with filters. One of the things I used was kind of trying to break the sounds you can get out of uh, turntable and tape modelers. And uh, so I used a plug-in called Tape, and um, I think it's the Abbey Road thing from Waves. Where And I, I put it through there and tried to break it. So you get just kind of, it's not just distortion. It has kind of that like, oh, you know, newsreel kind of warble. To yeah, it. an oversaturation more than distortion kind of. Exactly. Yeah. There's two elements in this film that I thought really popped out. I kind of mentioned it in the intro. One was the sound of the external players in the courtroom and how that guides us through making a quiet quiet group of people convey emotion is very difficult because you can't just bring up the volume of it they have to stay quiet and that murmur gasps shock uh laughter there's lots of muffled laughter how do you go about building that how many tracks wide was that like walk me through that a bit One of the things that was wonderful was our production mixer, Thomas Varga, the very first day in the courtroom. First of all, the courtroom was a huge piece, and it was probably the most, it was the first thing that Aaron talked to me about, was that courtroom. He made it purposely out of a church. It wasn't like the original courtroom, which is not what he wanted. He said, don't go there. I want it big. I want it cavernous. I want it to feel like the federal government is coming down hard on these guys. And so that was sort of our note when to everything, basically, was that the federal government is a suppressive force and it's coming down on top of everything that we do. So... The production mixer had nine mics, and he went there the first day of the courtroom, looked around and said, I'm going to need some more mics. And he went back and got, uh, I think he used 14 mics. And the other really cool thing he did was the prop master had brought all these vintage mics to use as props. And he said, hey, would you mind if I went through those to see what works? And, um, you know, see how we can make these things sound and what sounds good. And the guy goes, yeah, go for it. Well, he went to Aaron and said, hey, can we put some plant mics around? And Aaron said, no, absolutely. I don't want any mics. I don't want the judge to have them. I don't and finally, he kept at it. And he said, please, can we just get some mics? Because if we have everybody with loves, because... You know, they were shooting wide. Yeah, the courtroom is a huge physical space. It's not a small room. It's got a high ceiling, and there's lots of people in it in the uh, the benches behind the lawyers. Right. So there was this enormous span. So even though he always boomed with two booms, 
both sides just in case. He convinced Aaron to do it, thank God, because Julius Hoffman... That's the judge. Yeah, he was the judge, sorry. And he had a plant mic there the whole time. We used his mic almost, I mean, often. I don't even think he was loved because we really wanted that to be big. And his voice, actually, that was a side note, too, is Julian and I really worked at making him even bigger and more boomy and verb and EQ. So each each voice, by the way, too, Julian, who's not with us today, but Julian Slater was our, he was our re-recording dialogue and, and music mixer. We were very specific about creating these environments for each character. So the defendant's table sounded a certain way, the prosecutor's table sounded a certain way, the witness stand and the judge, depending on who was with in the witness stand. When Ramsey Clark, who was played by Michael Keaton, comes in, we did the same thing with him. And every time he got closer to the mic, it got it got bigger and deeper. And we just I just said, make it big. You know, he's like the most powerful witness we're going to have. And then, of course, he denies his testimony. Back to the mics, we were able to take all these mics that were placed all over the place. So he had mics in the in the galley. He had mics in uh, on pretty much everywhere you could put them. And it was a dream because we had choices for everything. There was rarely a time where, oh, we just didn't get this, right? We were also able to get that perspective of Julius from them. So there was a lot of perspectives we cut of the what was happening and then the reaction with the people. As you know, it can be simple to be complex and complex to be simple. It's an Aaron Sorkin film. So there is constant dialogue. And one of the things you have to be really careful about is that loop group, of course, is also dialogue. And you have to make sure that you're not in that same cool zone that the dialogue is in so that they become disruptive. You, they have to be additive. I was pretty happy with how it all sounded and how much work we all did. Michael did a lot of work with weaving in and out of things. And, and again, you know, laughter, it's, it's not easy to get that perfect sound right there because what our sound effects ended up being were like words. As soon as it sounds like a stage play, you're busted. There was a combination. You asked how many tracks. Uh, anywhere from one to sixty, <laughs> and it really it really depend on reaction because it was um, we got a really nice roadmap from Alan Baumgarten, our picture editor, because it really is about as Renee was saying, it's about the performance of a particular reaction, and it's really also about the timing. You can tell there's a pacing to the movie that you can't get in the way of, but at the same time, you need it to breathe. It was kind of following that blueprint and making it sound like it was all, you're all there. You're, you're inside that, um, that courtroom and all these, these other places. I, and what was cool about Aaron Sorkin, and actually what I was a little surprised about, to be honest, was I think by the time he got to the sound mix, he wanted to hear the world around his his words. He he wanted he wanted a feature. <laughs> he wanted it to sound like a feature. He was actually less concerned about his words than he was about. Okay, we need to be immersed in this. This, this is the entire story. So, and and you could actually tell very right on if you hadn't 
hit it right if something was sticking out in in a way and i don't mean sticking out with level it's just something's not playing correctly there really was a tone you had to follow <laughs> he said something wonderful to us when he came in to hear playback he said no one really understands what sound is but if you feel something while you're watching a film chances are it was sound that made you feel it and i thought wow we could have had this guy, you know, for all of our <laughs> interviews. But I mean, he really loved it. And he said, you know, like Michael said, it, making that courtroom not feel like canned or and you know, making it really feel visceral. And by the way, that was amazing Foley too. For, you know, another element too that we didn't talk about was the Bobby Seals situation where Judge Julius Hoffman tells Bobby Seale to be taken back into the room and be dealt with the way he should be dealt with. And it was cut so beautifully by Alan Baumgarten, who, by the way, is a really amazing uh, sound wizard, too. Like, he has a really good sense of sound, and it's wonderful to work with him because he gets it. So it's not like, look, this is what I did, and don't do anything else. You know, he really wants it to be better. Um, but in that moment, it was so frightening because we we basically recorded hyperfoley. We used Andy Malcolm in Toronto, who I adore, and I think he just does wonderful work. But it was the difference between sound and silence, and the importance of that. You know, so they take him in the back, and then everyone in the courtroom is almost like holding their breath, wanting to see what's happening, waiting to see what comes through that door. And there were simple moments like the federal prosecutor so nonchalantly p clicking his pen once and then cutting back to Bobby being shackled and beaten and handcuffed and really brutal, intense, and then back again to the courtroom, and then back and forth. And it was just this juxtaposition that was so wonderful. It was wonderfully cut and acted and performed, and and um, we were able to really make that a heightened scene, you know, that was really important to us. It also sticks out more because the court scene leading up to that is all very realistic. And then you suddenly have these moments like when the handcuffs are put, I think it's actually on his feet, not his hands. It cuts from the courtroom, which is super quiet and awkward, to this super loud shackles being put on his feet. And that's, you know, in realistic sense, it was too loud. But in an emotional sense, it just hits you right in the heart because this super injustice is happening. This guy who is all he's done is sit in his chair and complain that he's not being treated right. And all that does is make him get treated worse. And uh, yeah, that scene is a, is, was a highlight for me, for sure. How did you tackle that scene with the mix? Did you know that you were going to have those handcuffs really hit hard? It just felt like the right thing to do. Um, frankly, I kind of went for the level and was surprised that everybody was okay with it. Because it just, it, it, honestly, I was, I was mixing from, we all were kind of reacting with emotion. I mean, once Aaron talked to us, we we're like, all right, we got a license to go for this. We obviously know when we've gone too far and it doesn't feel organic. There's some big set pieces in the movie that are fun to do as a, you know, sound mixer and stuff. But that's actually my favorite sound moment in the movie also because it's exposed and it, you just get a real feeling with it. There's, I, I'm, I wish I had some better vocabulary, to, but it just, it really was mixed from emotion. Renee, what was your favorite sound moment in the film? Oh boy. God, there were so many. 
I mean, I was just thinking about another thing that's sort of Aaron Sorkin style. Like his big effects moments are basically dialogue that just keeps building and building and building and building. And that mock trial scene where you go between counselor interrogating Tom Hayden, cutting to Grant Park, cutting back to the politician's bar where they were totally oblivious. I mean, there was these three elements of, that had to be percolated at the same heat, really. So as the crowd starts, then Kunstler got hotter and hotter and hotter, and finally it got to the point where they were right on top of each other, and they were talking and almost yelling at each other, Kunstler and Tom Hayden, and then everything explodes, and then it's just silent. I mean, it, it, it's just so wonderful how you guys, like I loved what Michael and Julian did in that scene. It was just really amazing. The movie, when I first saw the trailer and when it first came out, I actually wasn't interested in it because it was so close to things going on in the real world. And I almost didn't want to go put my brain in that space. And then I watched the movie and I loved it. And it was, it was a really great movie and you did fantastic work. Thank you so much for talking to me about it today. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Timothy. Thank you for your interest. Film Bitters is produced by Timothy Muirhead, Renee Coronado, and Teresa Morrow. Theme music is by Mark Strait. Send your emails to info at tonebenderspodcast.com. Follow us on Twitter via at the Tonebenders and join Tonebenders Podcast on Facebook. Support this podcast. You can use our links when you shop with Amazon or B&H or leave us a tip. Just go to tonebenderspodcast.com and click the support button. Thanks for listening. If you are interested in more pro-audio-related content, stay tuned to hear what other members of the Audio Podcast Alliance are releasing. To learn more and find links to other shows similar to Tonebenders, go to audiopodcast.org. Hi all, this is Becky and Susan from the Sound Girls Podcast, where we speak to audio professionals from all walks of life. Join us Tuesdays at 9 a.m. and listen to the amazing array of sound humans talk about how they got into the biz. You can find the Sound Girls Podcast wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as our website, soundgirls.org. Immersive Audio Podcast, a podcast that explores all things immersive audio, we talk to thought leaders covering the art, science, and business of this fast-changing industry. We aim to inform, educate, explore, and unite the community. Subscribe now on your favorite podcast app.